0: But today we are in a series called Foretold. It's a two-week series around the story of Christmas. And last week, Pastor John and Pastor Jeff, they opened up the Word and and helped us see in Matthew chapter 1 that the covenant that was alive in Abraham and David uh, was fulfilled in Christ. So everything um, that looked forward from the Old Testament and told us about Christ came true at His arrival And this was the covenant that had been promised to Abraham and David. And we saw that in this kingly line um, that Christ came out of, though it was broken, it had been promises fulfilled um, one after another. But today we're on the other side of the arrival of Christ. Even in our own lives, we've celebrated Christmas Day. And it's fun for us. We have little children in our house. And I've been thinking about how we receive gifts in our lives And I've, in my limited experience with little kids, I've noticed something about them, and that is that they are brutally honest when they receive a gift. And, you know, to receive a gift well, it takes some artistic ability if you think about it. Think about you receiving a gift from a friend and them being present in the room, and you receiving this gift, like, in the fullness of that, and... And being able to respond to them in a loving way in the moment, no matter what the gift is. And in that instant, you have to kind of look at the depth of whatever this gift is and recognize that your friendship or your love is kind of intermingled with this gift. But at the age of three or four, it kind of peaks that there's no maturity in the reception of gifts. You know, we've all been at a Christmas party when an aunt or an uncle or or grandparent gives a child, a gift bag, and they go in and they pull something out. And you can just see it on their face. They're just not that excited about it, right? And what, what do they do? They go back to the bag. And the parents know that there's nothing else in the bag. But no, the kids are sure there has to be something else in the bag. So they dig in and they, 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 they don't find anything and they're just sad about it. But um, they get over it and everyone's happy in the end. But. Um, In thinking about that and being on the other side of all the gifts in our life, I want us to approach the scripture story today and look at how Christ, the gift, is received by the people. So you can turn to Matthew chapter 2. We're in Matthew chapter 2. The Christmas story is essentially in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. And they each tell it a little bit different way. Matthew's telling of the, the Christmas story is, is very succinct. It's to the point, straightforward. Um, and we'll, we'll cover most of it today, actually. Christmas Eve, we looked at the arrival, the birth of Christ. Um, But today we will look at the visit of the wise men. We're in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means the least of the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Jesus may have actually been a little bit older at this point, as old as two years old. And Matthew helps us date this whole occurrence historically, because he says, in the days of Herod, and he's talking about Herod the Great, who reigned for about 40 years in the area of Judea, he was under the authority of Caesar, but Herod the Great was a king in in this land. He was the king of Jerusalem, the king of Judea. And... We know from history that he had a reputation. He was a suspicious king. He was always feeling threatened. Even the way that he came into leadership, he kind of worked his way in. And then once he achieved that, he really wanted to protect it. So much so that at the end of his life, he actually um, did some really heinous crimes, killing some of his own family because he was so protective of his throne. And he was also a really renowned builder of the era he helped rebuild the temple and build some other things in the area. So he, he was an interesting king, and it's, he's one of the key characters in this story. And it's the wise men from the east that come to him. And in every good nativity set, right, we have the wise men present. Now, I just told you they may not have actually been present at the nativity, um, but they are part of the Christmas story. And, you know, every good family has to have a really nice nativity set. You know, we have one here for the church. And we actually have a few really beautiful ones at home. But we have this other one that's, I think, just kind of fun. So I want to bring it out to you and show you the kings in this nativity set. So this is uh, this is King Schroeder. He, he set aside his piano for the day so he could... Be in the play, the Peanuts play, the Christmas story play. So Schroeder is bringing the gold. This is Pig Pen. And my kids love this. They play with it all the time. This is Pig Pen. He's one of the wise men, of course, even though he's not very clean. This is Frankincense. Well, it's not Frankincense. His name's Franklin, which I thought, okay, well, that makes sense. He would be carrying the frankincense when I looked into it. Um, this is Franklin. He's the third king. And we all know there are three kings, right? And, um, at least according to the nativity sets that we have in our homes. But in reality, we don't know that there were three kings. I mean, there was probably an entourage that was coming. Traditionally, there are three because of the three gifts that, that, that are given to Christ. Um, but we don't know that much about the wise men. Even the phrase is, is interesting. It says, wise men from the east came. It, the, the phrase is literally, wise men from the rising And that's all we have. And after they disappear at the end of this story, they never show up again in all of Scripture. There is a sort of a beautiful foretelling of this scene in the book of Isaiah, the prophet. He foresees a glimpse into this. I want to read it for you. It's really beautiful. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. They shall come up with acceptance acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house." So the wise men come to King Herod, and they ask him this question in verse 2. Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? We can see some of the wisdom that they have. These are actually wise men because they have some information that even Jerusalem, the people of God, are not privy to at this point. They, knew, they know a new king has been born and that he's arrived but they don't know um, his name or his family or exactly where he is. So what do they do? They go to King Herod. And, and as we see these reactions, we'll see uh, some differences in the way they react. Because we see King Herod responds in verse 3. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, it's no surprise that King Herod would be troubled, right? We know he's suspicious, and he hears that a new king has been born in his city. Of course, this is good. if it's true, it's definitely troubling news. Um, but then it says, all of Jerusalem is troubled with him. And this, I've had a more difficult time understanding. Why is all of Jerusalem troubled at the news that a new king has been born? And I can only interject here that it's, it's, it's their fear of Herod and maybe the way he reigns that is pushing them uh, toward fear. So much so that when King Herod asked them, what, what, what's the deal? Like, what do your scribes and your chief priests know about this? They hand over to one of the most evil kings uh, the prophecy of their Messiah. Look what happens in verse 6. Well, verse, backing up to verse 4. Herod assembles the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. Matthew, The writer Matthew here, just to step out of it for a second, he's making it a connection here for us that we could just miss. The, ki- the, the wise men come asking for a king, and then Herod goes to the chief scribes and he says, where is the Messiah, the Christ, supposed to be born? Matthew wants us to connect the idea that this king that has arrived is the Messiah. Now, we know that now because we're on this side of the story, but this is, Matthew is making a really clear connection that this newborn king is the Messiah. It's, it's actually assumed in the text. So the chief priests and the scribes, you know, they, if they had a computer at that time, they would have put location of... Messiah, town. You know how we search for things. You just put all these words together and then you get the answer. But they, they had to go searching uh, into their prophets. And let's go back to Micah chapter 5. You can turn there. Micah is toward the end of the Old Testament. It's on page 662 if you're using the paperback Bible in the seats. But if you, if you're, if you have a Bible and you're following along, go back to Micah chapter 5. Because I want to read this prophecy from the lips of the prophet. It it actually, what's said in Matthew is expounded upon in a a little bit of fashion here. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great, to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The chief priests and the scribes, the things we heard last week, there had been all this silence. And even here, there's that phrase that he had given them up Until this time, even the Lord had given this time of silence for the people of God. But yet she who is in labor has given birth. And a ruler and a shepherd comes out of you, O little Bethlehem. Right at the beginning, there's a play on words. Muster your troops, Israel. But you, O Bethlehem, the smallest of the clans of Judah, though you can't muster any troops, out of you will rise up a ruler of all the people. And this this is another really beautiful connection of the way that we think about Christ. Um, Bethlehem, as some of you know, is the city of David, right? And the the reason we call it that is when Saul was king, one of the first kings of Israel, um, toward the end of his kingship, uh, Samuel was the Lord's prophet. And Samuel heard from the Lord that a new king needed to be anointed in preparation to become the king. And the Lord told Samuel to go to Bethlehem, to the family of Jesse. And when he got there, it was, it was almost done quietly because Saul was still king. And yet Samuel was anointing someone new to be king. And he asked Jesse to pass before him all his sons. So one by one, Jesse's sons from oldest to youngest go before Samuel. And Samuel was told that he would know For sure from the Lord who was to be anointed. And one by one they came from the oldest. It even says that the first son was completely fit to be the king. And yet Samuel passed over him. Until the seventh son and and Samuel was like, no, it's not him. And he said to Jesse, is that it? And Jesse is like, well, I do have another son. He's out tending the sheep. Seriously, this is what the text says. He's out tending the flock. And Samuel says, I'm not going to sit down until we bring him here. And lo and behold, David shows up. And they anoint David to be the future king of Israel. So Bethlehem holds this really beautiful place in the history of Israel. And out of this small, insignificant place, um, a ruler, a shepherd... The Messiah is foretold. When when the chief priests and scribes go back looking for where is the Messiah coming from, this is the text they go to. And they tell King Herod, yeah, he's coming from Bethlehem. And we know what happens next. Um, Herod says, well, to the wise men, when you go find him, I want to worship him also. And We know that he's lying because later on he tries to kill the Christ by killing the young children in Bethlehem. But in the search for the Messiah King, um, Micah was able to lead to the town, but not the family. And this is where I just thought a lot about this this week. And <clears throat> I went to Google again, This is just because I had to figure this out. Um, in Google, you can put in two places, and then you can say, by car, by train, by bus, by walking, how long does it take me to get point A to point B? So I put in our Wilmington campus and our Hockessin campus and I said, I wanna walk there. And so according to Google, it would take two hours and 50 minutes, about three hours, to walk from Wilmington campus to Hockessin campus. And not that I've ever done it, but I was like, that sounds about right, you know. I don't know, it sounds about right. I know it's mostly uphill, but... Um, I just think it sounds about right. And, and then I went over to Israel and put in Jerusalem, the center of Jerusalem, the center of Bethlehem, and I asked the same question. I said, I want to walk. Well, according to Google Maps, it takes one hour and 47 minutes to walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And I found this amazing because The savior of the world right now to the people of God is closer to them in Jerusalem than we are to our Wilmington campus. And they hear this news that a king has been born. They don't call it into question. They go to the prophets. Oh yeah, he's in Bethlehem. Oh yeah, yeah, you go. Why don't you go look for him? I don't know what to do with this except to say that Herod certainly, but not only him, the people around him, the chief scribes, the chief priests of scribes, the people that were in the family of God, the silence of 400 years had run so deeply that when they heard the Messiah was in town, not even simple curiosity would allow them to take a little walk up the hill to Bethlehem. This was not good news to them. Um, Not only did they not anticipate the gift that well, they didn't know how to receive it. The wise men's reaction is different. Um, Let's see what happens next. Go back to Matthew. Herod meets with them secretly because he's got plans. He tries to figure out when the star appeared so they could establish Christ's birth. And he sends them to go and find the Messiah. And he says, when you find him, bring me word so I can worship him too. And they listen to the king and they go on their way. In verse nine, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. I really believe that if the people of God are not going to lead these wise men to the Messiah, then God has to continue to use the star to, to help them find him. And it does. It helps the wise men locate Christ perfectly. And they do. And they come to him. and But even before that, when they see the star, that the star is really honing in on where Christ is, it says that in verse 10, that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now that is a Christmas sentence right there. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's in some of our Christmas carols. It's something that we would just kind of throw around at Christmas. But the sentence is, is almost like a repetitive one. Literally it reads, Rejoiced, joy, great, very great they're just overwhelmed at the sight of the star leading them to the Messiah and they still haven't even seen Christ yet. And then they come to the place where Christ was. And going into the house, they see the child with Mary his mother and they fell, fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. The word worshiped here is proskeneia and the word, it's a Greek word that means to bow down in reverence. And that's what they did. These wise men, you know, I've been thinking about them. What, they did not know very much, but they certainly had this wisdom. And their worship was acceptable to God. And, and then they disappear. And I, I thought, well, do they know the fullness of Christ, who Christ is, his, his death, his resurrection? I mean, it's just so strange how these Gentiles show up around the Jewish people of God and they're the ones that are worshiping. In John chapter 4, Jesus used the same word, proskenea, for worship in this sentence. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. This is a great picture of what worship is. Worship is seeing the baby, Jesus, recognizing his kingship, even as a child, and bowing down in worship. Even the child Jesus is not our equal. He's a king. And to fully understand the message of Christ, we have to see Christ as king, as the child. Because it reminds us that when we meet Jesus, we never meet him on equality. When you meet Christ, you do not meet him as a friend. Jesus didn't call his disciples friends until near the end, right before his death. He said, I call you friends now because you know my father's business and we're servants together. But to, to first see Christ is to recognize him as a child that's a king who both rules and shepherds. It's like the perfect description of Christ, the ruler, the shepherd of our life. And lastly, we see these gifts. I mean, how can a Christmassy sermon about the wise men not end on the gifts that they present the Christ child? So I have to spend a few minutes on this. Um, And so let's talk about them for a second. Gold, we know about gold, right? Some of you, I know, have gold tucked away in your house because of the market that we're in or whatever. Gold still, to this day, is the gift that you present to a king. If you were going to see a king, you would probably try to take him some gold and present that to him. If you, had, if you would offer him anything, that's what you would try to offer. So this gift is appropriate. Uh, frankincense and myrrh. Christmassy, but we're not sure, right? Like, if we all had a Christmas themed spelling test and frankincense and myrrh were on them, probably wouldn't do so well. (laughs) The two R's and myrrh's, I'm sure, would throw some of us off. In fact, I was typing frankincense into my phone and it auto corrected to fork ensemble. (laughs) Now, I thought that's just funny, you know. But frankincense is a scent, it's incense. And myrrh was, was a spice or a natural product that was added to oil to make anointing oil. And both frankincense and myrrh are all throughout the Bible, they each appear 20 times or so. Even at, in Revelation they show up. But they were, uh, the, some of the materials that were used to approach the holiness of God. I'll read briefly in Exodus chapter 30, if you want to turn there you can, back toward the beginning of the Bible. Moses was given specific directions on how the people of God should worship him, and this was really some intense information on how to approach a holy God. So in Exodus 30, Moses was receiving specific directions about the altar of incense and the, and the role that it would play and the, the role that the anointing oil played. But listen to this in Exodus chapter 30, verse 22, and I'll, I'll just read a few verses. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil, And you shall make of these a sacred anointing blend, oil blend, as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Myrrh was used in the anointing of the priests. So many people have connected uh, Christ as the priest when, when we look at the myrrh. At the end of that it says, if anyone makes this le- the same composition with myrrh and uses it on themselves... They should be cut off from the camp. And then it talks about the frankincense and how there's this specific pure frankincense blend of incense that should be used at the altar of incense. And if anyone uses that as perfume in the people of God, they should be cut off from God because this is the aroma that's pleasing to the Lord. It's the the Lord's aroma. So as we think about the wise men, All we can say is that their worship was acceptable to the Lord. What they offered the Lord was acceptable. And how they knew that with the information they knew, I have no idea. Except wisdom is one of the things that the Bible encourages us to pray for. And as we step back and think about the way this gift was received, and the artistry that the wise men had, verse Herod and the people of God at the time, The wise men were far off Gentiles with little information. Uh, They came on a long journey. They didn't give up at the end. And they humbly worshiped and bowed down. The people of God were less than two miles away from the Messiah. He had shown up according to prophecy and they missed it. And I think it all comes down to are we able to see Christ as king in our life? And to see Christ as king means that we submit to his rule and his shepherding in our hearts. We know from scripture that when, when Christ comes into us, the old is gone, the new is here. And we are new creations in Christ. Christ is our hope of glory. He, he actually lives and breathes in our lives and, and guides us. But are you, as a believer, are you submitting to the kingship of Christ at the center of your life? Jesus from birth is king. And I thought we could end today simple, humble worship. This is the response to a king, is to worship him. So I want to encourage you in your life just to worship the Lord um, fully, whatever that means for you, and figure it out. And come to Christ. Uh, He is king at his birth. Please bow your heads and pray with me. I'm gonna invite the worship team just to lead us in worship, and I'll pray over us now. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who is king from birth. Lord, the kingship of Jesus predates his birth. Lord, but we know at his birth, um, the fullness of his identity as a king was there. Lord, and thank you for the wise men. Thank you that these men, who we know little about, they understood that a new king had been born. Lord, thank you for revealing this information to them mysteriously, and thank you for opening up your words to them and, and leading them to Bethlehem to find you and worship you. Lord, and I pray that we would be like that, that we would not be afraid to worship you, Lord, as king in our lives. Lord, and as we just think about today and the new year, Lord, I pray that you would uh, really guide us by your spirit. Um, Lord, we, we know that only you can uh, even help us understand what you mean. It was on the road to Emmaus, Lord, that you had to open up the scriptures um, to the men that had heard about you, and then they understood. Lord, and it was your identity as king that... Um, got your son Jesus crucified on the cross. Lord, so we do um, look to our King Jesus, Lord, and we ask that uh, you would really enable us, Lord, to live under the kingship of your son Jesus. Show us what that means. Reveal it to us in our everyday lives. We know it can be done in the simple and everyday ways that we live. Lord, and I pray that our worship will be pleasing to you. Pray this in Jesus' name.